We are continuing this morning in our study of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 9. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1167. Uh, Acts chapter 9. Now, if you're at all familiar with the book of Acts, if you've read it like once, you will know that the bulk of it, the bulk of the book follows the ministry of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he travels, generally speaking, north and west from Jerusalem, through Asia Minor, through Greece, eventually all the way to Rome itself. Paul is probably the most famous Christian evangelist in history. But he was introduced to us, you'll remember, just a couple of chapters ago, in a very different guise. He was introduced to us as violently opposed to Christ, to the gospel, and and in fact, ravaging the church. Then last week, we saw God dramatically reveal himself to Paul, to Saul as he was known then, and completely change the course of his life. Now, you know that if we were watching a movie, this is where the movie would end, right? He's been the enemy, and there's been this dramatic reversal, and now he is with the people of God, and, has been, and, and, and then it fades to black. And you get maybe a couple of sentences of the rest of his career as a, as a missionary, but that's the whole of the story, and that's where it ends, if it was a movie, right? This isn't a movie. Luke is telling us the true story of Saul's life. So imagine yourself, if you will, in Saul's shoes for just a moment. Violent persecutor of the church five minutes ago. Now, suddenly, a member of that self-same church. How would you react if you were in that situation, if that was the story of your life? How do you think you'd, you'd react to that? Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Now, as always, before I read the passage, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to be present among us. So if you're able, please stand with me while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 9. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, uh, for in it you reveal truth. You shine your light on our lives and show us yourself. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work this morning, that by your Spirit present among us, that we would receive your word with gladness and worship you Uh, through the truth that you reveal here. May your name be praised in all this word as we read and preach it this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 9, starting in uh, verse 19. This is God's word. For some days he, that is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem with those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates night and day in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him, 
And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. When the first followers of Jesus began to describe themselves in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, they didn't call themselves Christians. That name, if you're curious, means little Christs and wasn't applied to them until probably a generation or two later. And even then, it was first used by those who opposed the gospel and as a derisive term. But the Christians later adopted it. When these believers in this, this first generation, when the believers spoke of themselves... They either called themselves followers of the way, or the way that is laid out for us by Christ, who is himself the way. Um, they, They either called themselves followers of the way or simply disciples. And this has been the core characteristic of Christians ever since. We are following the path, the way. It's just that word means road originally. Uh, The way that was laid out for us by Christ, who is himself the way. Put another way, we are disciples. We are those who learn from Christ and imitate Him. If that's the case, then even today we have to ask a question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to be a follower of the way? What does it mean to learn from Christ 2,000 years later, and imitate him. What does that look like in our lives? Now, chances are, because most of us here have been involved in the church for a while, uh, you probably have some ideas that have come to your mind, some ways, particular activities or attitudes that you would include in that list of what that might look like, things that should uh, comprise discipleship. But in our passage this morning, we have a chance to see a deep look at a new disciple. To be fair, he's an exceptional case, right? Paul is not your typical run-of-the-mill disciple, uh, given what we know about his later life. But I think there are three ways that we can see from his following the way of Christ in this passage that can help us and shape our discipleship in our lives today. In this passage, in the life of Paul generally, we see first Paul studied the Word of God. We see that he trusted the Lord's mercy. And we see that he proclaimed the Lord's grace. He studied God's word, he trusted God's mercy, and he proclaimed God's grace. But first, let's look at his study of God's word. And right here, I have to apologize, I'm sorry, because this relies not just on this passage, but what Paul wrote later, reflecting on this time in his life. Uh, In the letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote, this is chapter 1, he said that after he had encountered the risen Lord on the Damascus road and was baptized there in Damascus, he spent several years there, and even went into Arabia before he returned to Jerusalem. He says, he, as I say, he went to Arabia, which is just the neighboring province in that day. Arabia wasn't Saudi Arabia down in the peninsula, but rather that area just east of Damascus, of, of the Syrian area there. So just one state over into the desert. Uh, and he spent time there uh, studying, and, after, and then after that returned to Damascus. And it was three years before he went south to Jerusalem. So Luke is, in our passage this morning, compressing several years of Paul's life 
in, of, the, of the life of the church in this section. But what was he doing out there in the desert? What did he do while he was out in Arabia? We're not told exactly, but I think it's safe to understand that what he was doing was studying God's Word. God had initially appeared to him bodily to get his attention, shift his perspective, change his understanding of who Jesus was. But Paul specifically says that he didn't consult with anyone, but instead went away into Arabia. So he didn't learn the gospel from somebody else, but learned it from the word of God. Now, as a Pharisee, being trained for leadership in Israel, being trained for the highest echelons of the priesthood there in Israel, he would have studied God's word, all of it, deeply, what we call the Old Testament. Even memorizing large portions of it, it would have been intimately familiar to him. But he'd also been taught the assumptions and the understandings of the world that his teachers held. And so then when he encountered the risen Christ, he had to adjust all of those perspectives and change those assumptions. And so once the Lord changed those assumptions and perspectives, he goes off to read and study and rethink his understanding of God's self-revelation in his word. Now, I suspect we don't have Paul's educational background. But we have the same access to, the, to God's Word that Paul did, and in fact, perhaps even more because we each have our own copy of God's Word. We have access in ways that are unthinkable until very recently. We have the same Holy Spirit in us that Paul had in, in, the, in him, leading us to the truth that is revealed in his Word. The first call of discipleship is to study the face of Christ, which we see most clearly, which we see Him revealed clearly in His Word. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because I suspect that no one's disagreeing with me in this. Uh, This is what we expect discipleship to be. Study God's Word, memorize it, get to know it, be familiar with it. This is what we expect. That's what you expected me to tell you this morning, right? To be a disciple, you need to study God's Word. You do. It's true. It's not reducible less than that. Now, I will say it doesn't require going off in the desert by yourself. Paul didn't stop studying God's Word when he came back to Damascus. Our interaction with God's truth revealed here should be a day-in, day-out, near-constant engagement. Now, that may look different in our different life stages different personalities, different areas of gifting. So in, our, in your life, it might look different than in somebody else's life. But there should be in your life, Christian, a pursuit of God's truth, of His Word, of digging in and knowing it and being shaped by it. Find a way to be engaging with God's Word, for it is the primary, fundamental revelation of the character and heart of Christ. Disciple at root means learner. And the simplest way to learn of Christ is to study His Word. Seek His face there, first, last, and all through the middle. Paul studied God's Word. But he also, second, trusted God's mercy. When I was in college, there was a a popular, well, popular in my circles anyway, you may not have heard of it, but it's a popular song that started with the lyric, No one would love me if they knew all the things I hide. No one would love me if they knew all the things I hide. Does that resonate? A couple of years ago, I, I met a man who had 
had all the opportunity in the world. He was smart. He was well-liked. He had a good job, had good prospects at his job. But then he had gotten involved with drugs, ultimately got hooked on opioids. Given the problem that that has been in recent years, I'm sure you know where this story is going. He blew up his life. He lost his job. He lost his wife and kids. Eventually committed a felony, a stupid felony that he had no chance of getting away with. Was caught. Was thrown in prison. Now, in prison he got clean, but then had to come to terms with all that he had done while he was high. He spent years racked with guilt and shame at the hurt and pain that he had caused to everyone around him. To all the people who were most important to him, to the people that he loved most dearly, he felt that what he had done, not the drugs per se, but the tornado of destruction that he inflicted on the lives of everybody around him. He believed that on some level that was unforgivable. No one would love me if they knew all the things I hide, all the things that I've done. Our lives, our stories are probably not as dramatic as all that, Large or small, our sin weighs on us. As Christians, y'all, we know sin is wrong, right? We get that. But we often think and talk about it only in very general terms. We talk about sin, not this specific sin. It is natural for the things we have done or failed to do to be much more prominent in our thinking because of our intimate familiarity with it. To have those specific things prey on our mind, prey on our guilt, weigh heavily on our hearts. Maybe it's an abortion. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's your internet usage. Maybe it's something you did as a teenager that you've never been able to shake despite all that you've done since then. Maybe in your sin, in your foolishness, you used someone you love to get something you wanted treated them like a means to an end instead of as a person. Maybe it's something that you stole, even stole as a child decades ago that still haunts you. Maybe it's something that you failed to do, a time that you could have said or done something and yet remained silent and you wish now that you had spoken up. For each of us, in each of our past, there is That thing, and you know what I'm talking about, that thing in your life about which you are ashamed, about which you feel guilty. For some of you, maybe it's something that everyone knows, a public sin, a public failure that was a nine-day wonder, grist for the gossip mill. More likely, though, it's something that no one else knows, that you hold hard in your heart and pray that no one ever finds out. Terrified, because you believe No one would love me if they knew what I hide. Even as believers, it is so easy for us to slip into thinking, yes, okay, Jesus forgave sins, but this one thing, it's too far. It's too much. There's no way he could forgive all of this. Maybe God will forgive me, but nobody else will. And the guilt And the shame eat at us from the inside. They consume our thoughts and our lives. As we said last week, Saul, Paul is possibly the most famous conversion in the history of Christianity. Everybody's familiar with it. He had led the persecution of Christianity in Jerusalem. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church there. 
Christ appeared to him and blinded him, changed the course of his life. But again, put yourself in his shoes just for a minute. Set aside your familiarity with the story and where it's going to go. Think about that moment where he's just come to faith and he's now with the disciples in Damascus. Put yourself in his shoes then. For the rest of his life, the memory of Stephen's death by the lynch mob was engraved in his mind because he literally stood there holding their coats as they stoned him to death. Giving his approval, helping. He was thrilled that it was being done. He went on from there to find every Christian he possibly could to throw in prison or kill the whole of his life for months at least and probably for years. The whole of his life in that time was devoted to killing Christians, to rooting out and destroying what he had just discovered was God's truth. I think if it had been me, the guilt of what I had done against God and against the true believers, I think it would have destroyed me. At the very least, I would have retired from public life in disgrace. Go find a cabin in the wilderness somewhere where I couldn't do anybody any more damage. What's Paul's response? Look at verse 19. He said, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And this applies a lot more than just physical presence with them, although it can't be less than that. He identified with those that he had been persecuting five minutes before. Owned their cause and their claims for himself made himself one with them. As we'll see in a minute, publicly he, he publicly declared his allegiance to Christ and to the body of believers. That is a huge change. How was he able to make that sharp turn to avoid being crushed under the weight of the shame of all that he had already done? Here's the thing. There are two kinds of guilt. There is... I'll call it demonic guilt, uh, guilt that is an attack from the adversary. But there is also such a thing as godly guilt, godly shame. The Holy, Scripture, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That's one of the things that is central to His role within the plan of redemption. The Holy Spirit will bring to your mind the things that you've done and said and thought, the things that you failed to do and say and think, all the ways that you have failed to measure up to God's law. He will do that. It is part of His identity and character to convict you of your sin. But, and this is the key question, to what end? To what end does he bring that to your mind? Godly guilt, godly shame, the prompting of the Holy Spirit will not crush you because its specific purpose is to build you up. Godly guilt and demonic guilt both remind you of your sin. Each will show you the ways that you have failed to be what God has called you to be, but demonic guilt and shame will drive you to despair. What you've done is too bad for anything to forgive, for anybody to forgive. No way God will accept you again. This is too much. You are beyond the pale. It will drive you to despair. It will drive you to yourself. It will drive you only to more guilt and more shame and more separation from your Savior so that you are consumed by what you have done and paralyzed. Turned more and more in on yourself so that you cannot see anything other than the ugliness of your sin rising before you. 
fixed on the, the wickedness of your heart. It will drive you to hide everything you can so that nobody else sees the ugliness that you see because you know just how ugly it is. You know how much worse you are than everybody else. Demonic guilt will drive you into yourself, will cause you to focus on your sin. On the other hand, godly guilt will also remind you of your sin as the Holy Spirit brings it to mind. But godly guilt doesn't drive you inward. It drives you outward. It drives you to the cross. Godly guilt says, you have failed. You have not pleased God in any way and you need to repent, but Christ pleased God for you. Christ took your place, paid the penalty for that sin that looms so large in your eyes. He paid for it and you get the record of His perfection. Run to the cross and He will wipe it away. You are welcome as a favored son. As a child of God, come and receive His pleasure earned for you by Christ. Both are guilt, but the difference could not be bigger. If, you, if what you're feeling is kind of foggy feeling of, I've done something wrong and it's terrible and I'm bad because of it, but I can't really put my finger on exactly what it is, that is the adversary attacking you. He wants you to feel that it can't be fixed. Because if you can put a finger on it, if you can label what it is, if you can define it, then you can repent of it. But if you can't, all you do is feel worse and worse and farther from Christ. If your feelings of guilt and shame cause you to think about yourself, to remember what a worm you are, what a terrible person you are, how you've never done anything right and probably never will, if that feels familiar, welcome to the inside of my head, right? If your guilt drives you to despair and not to Christ's hope, run away from it. It is a lie. On the other hand, if your guilt is scalpel sharp, pointing precisely to where you need to repent and leading you to where to reconcile with God and with others, that is most likely from your Savior, from Christ, leading you to repentance. If your feelings of guilt and shame are prompting you to, the, to run to the cross, to read God's Word, to study and learn to trust the life, death, and resurrection of Christ more because of your sin and because of what you feel guilty over, trust that feeling, bless that feeling, kiss that feeling because it is God's gift to you to lead you into holiness, to lead you in sanctification. That is good and righteous guilt. That is the Holy Spirit sanctifying you. That is the Holy Spirit who loves you as a son or daughter, making you holy. That is what the discipline that the author to Hebrews talks about that all sons have received in chapter 12. That is what discipleship looks like. And when you do that same sin again and again and again, because we do in this life, as you wrestle to mortify or kill that sin out of your life, nevertheless, let our continuing sin continue to drive us to the cross. 
If your guilt drives you to hope, positively to hope, to rejoice with great expectation in the cross of Christ that is good and righteous and trustworthy, that is, in my opinion at least, that is what God created guilt for. To lead you to repentance, to lead you to Him, to rest in His Christ, in His finished work more and more. Saul could easily have been crushed under the weight of his sin. Almost more than anyone in church history, he had earned judgment from God. He had rational cause to believe that he was disqualified. He had literally killed the people of God every chance he got. But as we heard this morning in Sunday school, the people who wrote the largest sections of the Bible, Moses, David, Paul, all murderers, The Lord washed them clean and used them for His glory. He can do the same for you. A true appreciation of Paul's sin drove him to trust the Lord's mercy because the more clearly we see our sin, the more we recognize that I can't fix it. If I get just a little hint of my sin, I might think, oh, well, I can make it right. If I just just work hard enough, I can make it right. The more clearly you see your sin, the more clearly you will see that you cannot fix it. All you can do is run to the cross and accept the relief, the grace that he has provided there. Paul's guilt before God caused him to rejoice in Christ, and that rejoicing makes him immediately begin, third, to proclaim the Lord's grace. Look at verse 20. As my Bible falls apart here. Uh, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. He tells everyone he can about Jesus that he is the Son of God, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. He immediately begins to use the gifts that God had given him that he had been using in opposition to the, the gospel, now for the gospel. The training that the Lord had provided him, he now uses to defend the Lord and does it very effectively. Look at verse 22. It says, Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The Jewish leadership in the synagogues of Damascus could not compete with Saul's knowledge of the Scriptures and his demonstration of Jesus' identity from them as Christ and Son of God. Again, both of those are familiar terms that we have now for Jesus associations with Jesus, but it was radical in those days because those, the Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The Son of God was a title associated solely with the coming promised one, the Redeemer of God's people, the Messiah. Paul proved from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the one, this rebel, this criminal who'd been condemned and killed on a cross, he was the promised redeemer of God's elect that he had conquered by dying and rising again. And the Holy Spirit worked through Paul. And we know the Holy Spirit was working from the reaction of the leadership. They couldn't defeat him in debate, so they wanted him dead. Get rid of the threat to their understanding of God. One way or another, we don't care which, either you know, prove that he's wrong or just kill him. Get him out of here. Of course, this is exactly what Saul had been doing like five minutes before, right? So this is hardly surprising. But now the tables are turned. The leadership set men to wait for Paul by the gates of the city so they can capture and kill him. And heads up, this is not the last time that's going to happen. 
But they get wind of the plan. And the disciples lower him out, out a window in a basket. Also not the last time that's going to happen. And Saul travels to Jerusalem. What's the first thing he does when he gets to Jerusalem? Verse 26, he attempts to join the disciples. He goes to find his brothers and sisters to be with the people of God there in Jerusalem. When we understand both our sin before God and the grace purchased by Christ, we no longer want to try that lone wolf thing. to Be off by ourselves and do it all on our own and figure it out by ourselves because you know we're Western and hyper-independent and whatever else. When we understand the grace of God and the truth of our sin, we don't want that because we, it's not going to help. Satan would like nothing more than for you to try to isolate yourself, cut yourself off, to remove yourself from the fellowship of the saints, from the covenant community of believers. Why? Because the body of Christ, the church, is one of the main ways that God points us to himself in the midst of our guilt and shame. You know this. When you're feeling down, when you're feeling weighted by your sin, it's so hard to pull yourself up to look at Christ. But how much easier is it when your brother or your sister comes alongside and says, look to Christ. He is enough. We need each other. The body has been designed for mutual encouragement, for mutual edification, for being built up together. It's not always pretty because we're all sinful, right? We sin against each other. We hurt each other. But sinful people in community with each other is the contradictory, irrational, insane means that God uses to make his bride beautiful, to make us more and more in his image, to make us holy. Our adversary uses guilt to drive us away from exactly those means, to get us away from the word, away from the sacraments, away from prayer, and away from each other to drive us away from all that God has given us. Maybe that's literally running away and not attending church. Maybe it's simply being here but holding everybody out at arm's length and not being willing to share your heart. Never allowing anyone to see your heart, to see your struggles, to see your sin. Demonic guilt drives us away from the people of God. Godly guilt drives us into fellowship with God and His people. I'll be honest, that fellowship will often be uncomfortable because these people are sinful too. And their sin is going to rub up against your sin and it's going to create friction, it's going to create problems, and you're going to have to work through that. Nothing is ever going to be the perfect idealized church this side of glory. But God can and does use exactly that discomfort to bring us both to repent, both to each other and to him, and to believe the gospel more deeply, more rootedly, more groundedly, to stand on that firm foundation, to repent and believe. It drives us to be sanctified. This is what it means to follow the way, to follow Christ, to be a disciple. We study his word that we might know him, know his character, and recognize his hand at work in our lives. We trust his grace and mercy ministered to us by himself and his spirit and by his saints. And the grace that we've received drives us to proclaim Christ's grace to everyone else.
to those who are not yet His, to those who are already His. This is what it means to be a disciple. Because we all need grace and mercy from the Lord. And this mutual encouragement in grace is what Luke points us to in his summary. This summary, y'all, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. He's been talking about Paul and persecution and all of these things, and Paul's just getting run out of the church in Damascus, and all these bad things happen. And what is the summary in verse 31? He's run out of Damascus, he's run out of Jerusalem, and then, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied wait what that doesn't seem to follow the means that the Lord uses to drive us to himself do not often make logical sense to us he uses what we would normally run from to lead us to himself. He uses our sin. He uses the wickedness of the world. He uses the persecutions of those that hate Christ to lead us to himself, to lead us to trust him more, to make us more like him. These are the means by which he sanctifies us, or rather by by which he drives us to the means of grace, the word, sacraments, prayer, the people of God, the church. This is the things that he uses for his glory and our good. Why would we pray them away? Y'all, we are so comfortable in the United States, in the global West. When hard times come, what do we do? Lord, get rid of it. Free me from this. I don't want to deal with this. This is God's gift to you to make you in the image of his son. No, it's not fun, but welcome it. Rest in His grace in the midst of whatever storms He allows in your life because He is sovereignly controlling all of it, and He is good. And on those two truths, all our lives stand. He is sovereign, and He is good to His children. Rest in that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. We thank you for the hard providences that you allow in our lives. As much as we don't want them, we thank you that you work through them to glorify yourself, to lift us into your presence, to make us more and more in your image, that you would be glorified in all things. May your name be praised as we continue to worship you this morning and with the whole of our lives. Glorify yourself, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.